Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to The Rest is Politics Leading with me, Alistair Campbell, flying solo today without Rory Stewart, who is uh, logistically challenged, shall we say, between uh, between airports. But I'm delighted to be joined by somebody who you'll have heard if you listen to The Rest is Politics Question Time <laughs> a few days ago, uh, and who has got a very, very interesting history. We'll talk a bit about your childhood. We'll talk a bit about your career, very successful career as a musician. But the reason why you're on leading is because in recent months in particular, you've become a really prominent and significant voice in a very, very important cultural, political, social, economic debate, and that is water. So welcome, Fergal Sharkey. Alistair Cavill, thank you very much. And thank you for the glorious praise and wise words and insight all of it completely untrue of course and well, I will be now I don't think incredibly bashful and uh, retire quietly back to my home in North London I don't think you will because I think you <laughs> I think that there's a wonderful quote from Roosevelt who said people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care yeah now I get the impression that you know a lot about the water industry that you do your homework you do your research <laughs> you're mildly obsessive damn but more importantly you care now, I guess your character is key to this. You've obviously got a, a personality that you're driven and you, if you decide upon something, you go for it. I just want to go right back to the beginning. You ended up living most of your life in England, mm-hmm. but how much of a, a Northern Irishman do you feel? Um, I would listen distinctly because it's what created me. And uh, it is very Freudian, but invariably tell me about your childhood and in my case that was quite an interesting childhood mm. uh, my father was chairman of the Labour Party in Derry when there was such a thing yeah do you think by the way do you think there should be again uh, oh I think there should be oh absolutely and that's ironically enough when my father passed away mm. the Irish Times did this quite big obituary and even in the 1950s he spent huge amounts of time in this ultimately futile effort of trying to reach out to the Protestant community on the simple basis that everybody needed to bury the hatchet of sectarianism because the industrialists in Northern Ireland were using that division to separate the working classes, to diffuse their ability to make a cohesive, strong argument about pay conditions, uh, holiday pay, maternity pay, housing and everything else. And it was used to exploit the working classes in both communities. Now, as it turns out, I could argue that my dad was clearly 40 years ahead, ahead of, of his, his time, time yeah. and trying to make that argument. And he never made the inroads to it. Uh, he was also a branch secretary of his local union, the electrician's union. I'm still traumatized and probably spend years in therapy about being taken as an eight, nine-year-old child to a meeting, a union meeting, and I'm in a room with 400 other men and my father. They're all referring to him as Brother Sharky. And as a confused eight-year-old, I'm going, who the hell are these people? I've never met any of these. You're not my brother. You're not my uncle. You're not my dad's brother. I have no idea who you are. Why are you calling my dad Brother Sharky? Um, the truth is, in the Sharky family, it wasn't my dad was the political powerhouse. 
like all good Irish matriarchal families, that would be my mother. Uh, my mom was massively motivated about the civil rights movement, massively motivated about trying to preserve the Irish language and culture and the arts, and was friends with people like Brian Friel and Channel Casey and all kinds of people. And it was my mum who, on the morning of uh, April the 9th, 1969, demanded that the whole family climbed into the car. The dad drove us all to the opposite side of Ireland, where as a family, we took part in the People's Democracy Civil Rights March between Belfast and Dublin, protesting against injustices to the Catholic community in Northern so Ireland. So you'd, you'd have been 12? I was 10. You are 10 then, okay. 10, 11. Now, so, just a minute, on, and, and just on your, your names, you, we know you as Fergal Sharkey. You, you're, <laughs> actually, you're actually called Sean Fergal Sharkey. Sean. Oh, bloody hell. <laughs> you're called Sean Fergal Sharkey, right? And just tell us who, you, who you're named after. Uh, if anybody knows the song, an Irish song called Sean South from Gary sing it, sing it. Uh, I'm afraid not even the Restless Politics oh. podcast can afford that excessively modest <laughs> fee. Uh, Sean South uh, and Fergal O'Hanlon were killed attacking a police station in Northern Ireland in January of 1957, a year before I was born. My mother, clearly without the aid of Ultrascan or other aids, clearly decided that if her newborn child was going to be a boy, she was going to name him Shan Fergal in honour of two dead IRA men. Now, what might that tell you about my mother's politics? Well, it gives me a fair <laughs> indication that she wasn't maybe as, as committed to the Labour Party cause as your dad. Um, and how do you feel about that? Oh, well, listen, conversely, it's one of those things that I grew up in a household where it's extraordinary thinking about it. And it, it is incredibly Freudian, but I hope it does answer your question. There was nights in my kitchen that the local plumber, the electrician, the housewife, the local poet, the local school teacher would discuss bringing down the national government in Northern Ireland. And I watched as a 10, 11, 12-year-old child, I watched the local housewife, electrician, plumber, electrician, school teacher bring down the bloody government in Northern Ireland or play a role in achieving mm. that. So I grew up in a house where, well, anything's possible. The other bit, my mum organised this festival called Fish that I call them Kill, which was all about preserving the Irish language and culture and everything else. So other nights there'd be people having mad philosophical arguments about the merits and disdains of how much Seamus Heaney tried to replicate William Butler Yeats and maybe he should get his own gig together. <laughs> so when I reflect upon it, you just go, what an extraordinary household and an extraordinary opportunity to grow up in. What an extraordinary life they've led. And would you say you, sh you, you, sh basic, you, you share the basic politics of your parents? Oh, listen, without exception. Uh, I, there's no way around that whatsoever. And I still have this very simple belief that society has an obligation to protect the vulnerable. And that's kind of my opening game in any game of politics whatsoever. And so wh when, did you, when did you leave Northern Ireland? Um, that was the early 1980s, I think 83, 84. It'll come as no surprise that the early undertones... We tried quite hard to kind of still live there. I think we were incredibly conscious that, oh God, are we going to be that classic little band, has a bit of a hit, and that's it. You're out of there within five minutes and the next people see of you, you're in some national newspaper surrounded by champagne bottles and lots of cash. And we tried really hard to just be those kids back in Derry. Um, but by the early 1980s, and particularly when I was clearly focusing on going out to try and make my own records, invariably that was going to mean a move to London. And just tell me a little bit, I'm fascinated in the way bands come together and the whole creative, <laughs> the, the creative process. I mean, just give me a flavour of what being a, 
a, a young want-to-be professional musician um, was like at that time. It was a completely random act of coming together where there was literally two brothers and a couple of their friends, 15, 16, 17. Oh, let's be in a band. Okay, but we've got no gear. And by the way, it doesn't matter because nobody can play anything anyway. Oh, but, well, we need somebody to can sing because we're not good any good at it. Oh, well, I know this bloke in school called Sharky. He's on all these feshes and all these Irish singing competitions. He wins loads of medals, I'll ask him. And uh, maybe he'll come and sing. And the first time I turned up and met the other guys that were to become the undertones, uh, little did I know that all the kit they had, the guitars, the amplifiers, the drums, they actually owned none of it. They completely borrowed every bit of it. And as it turned out, nobody could play a thing. So what are the chances in the big universe we all live in that five random kids with no outward talent, ability or background could just come together and within two years have created Teenage Kicks? How did that work? Um, it was literally people just sitting around going, well, I've got this tune. I've got this idea for something. What do you think? Um, and ironically enough, we were always driven Curiously at the time, by criticism and by people going, you can't do that. See, there's more Freudian, it's just occurred to me. At the time in Ireland and around where we grew up, there were kind of tribute bands. So there was a local band that could play the whole of Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd, absolutely note perfect. And that's what they would do every Friday night, was get up on a pub and they would play Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd, absolutely note perfect. They looked at us and go, went, well, you can't play. Yeah, well, you're rubbish. And that would just kind of make us go and practice even more. And then we realised, well, they can't play their own songs, so you know what, we're going to write songs. Now, we'd no idea what we were doing. Um, so we just made it up as we went along. And it is just one of those random acts of creativity. You've been around it enough, Alistair. You can put five people from creative backgrounds in a room and nothing will happen. It'll be the most boring or you've ever spent of your life. But you just put five different personalities in, and for some unknown reason, the way they interact and relate to each other, suddenly this magic occurs, and suddenly we... The original idea was, thanks to a guy in Belfast called Terry Hooley, mm -hmm. who ran a little record shop, who let us borrow 100 quid to pay for eight-hour studio time, so one week we went and spent four hours in the studio recording. We went back a week later and spent another four hours mixing it. Oh, but by the way, we had no idea what we are doing. And I still to this day think I was standing there going, well, a bit more of the blue knob, please. But I've no idea what the blue knob actually bloody well does. Uh, and if you've ever seen the movie, and if you haven't, Good Vibrations, a movie. It's about Terry. Yes, that did happen. We're there in the studio and everybody else, we're just doing our thing and everybody else in the studio is sitting there listening to Teenage Kicks being recorded for the first time, just going, oh my God, we've never heard anything like this. And we're just going, yeah, but we're five kids from Derry and this is what we do. Brilliant. And you were on Top of the Pops. Yeah. On the night that Bobby Sands died. Yeah. So what did your mum think of that? Uh, Talk about your life going in a different direction. I know, listen, completely. And that's, if you now go back and look at the footage, you'll see that some of the band were wearing black armbands. Ah. See, the way you say, ah. Were you? Were you? <laughs> I wasn't, but some of the band did. Right. Why, uh, did, why did you not? Uh, this is one of the most iconic because, developments within uh, the whole piece, well, the whole Troubles was this Bobby Sands hunger strike. Oh. He became a symbol. Without, he listen, dies. without question, unfortunately, in Irish history, it was just repeating a game that had been played out any number of times before. So was it a monumental moment in Irish history? Yes, it was. 
Um, and that's invariably you get into those conversations of, well, we can not do it. And would that be a protest? But they'll just put somebody else on. And by the way, for a three minute slot on top of the pops, there'll be 50,000 other people out there will take that. In which case, nobody even knows you've done it. Or do we do it? And without mentioning anything to the BBC, do a couple of the band turn up wearing black armbands and the BBC just film it and broadcast it. They had no idea what was going on <laughs> until it was explained to them several days later. All right, Fergal, lots more fascinating stuff in your life to come after a break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Caddy Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. How do you feel about the about what's going on in Northern Ireland now? I mean, you know, just track back a bit. How have you seen Northern Ireland develop? And um, how do you feel about it now? Well, you see, ironically enough, it, it, this Ireland's kind of an extraordinary place, where the Republic of Ireland, thirty years ago, eighty-five percent of the population of the Republic of Ireland would go to mass on a Sunday. Mm. And priests would get up in pulpits and tell 85% of the population what to do. And we would all do it. So here's the thing. In 30 years, the Republic of Ireland became the first country in the world at a national referendum to pass a quality of marriage legislation, has amended the constitution not once but twice to legalise abortion and contraception. And as we speak at this very moment in time, it's been governed by the openly gay son of an Indian immigrant and an atheist poet who was re-elected for a second term as president. Mm. Well, what the hell were you people doing? I left you alone for five minutes and look what <laughs> happened. So it's true and it's part of where politics fails and it brings us back to Westminster. Is it divisive and is it an affront to democracy in the modern world that there is not an assembly in Northern Ireland? Yes, there is. That is an outrageous situation and it's one that needs to be resolved. And I will point the finger both the politicians in Northern Ireland. Uh, but I might add, Alistair, if uh, you haven't seen it, and in fact, I think 
at this point, it should be compulsory viewing for every single politician, certainly in Northern Ireland, if not most definitely in Whitehall. Mm. Once upon a time Absolutely. in Northern Ireland, the first episode, there is a clear lesson and reminder. That's where we've come from under no circumstances. Should we have any ambition to go back there? But equally, I'm afraid I have to say it, Alistair, you end up tracing the world back to Whitehall and number 10 and the complete disregard and scant regard that number 10 and this government has shown towards Northern Ireland and the people of Ireland and the future of Northern Ireland, whether it's part of United Ireland or not. Mm. But they have just shown little, if any, interest, if not utter disdain and disregard. Mm. And again, a plague of locusts on all of the houses for that. Northern Ireland's possibly on the edge of going quite through a few difficult years. For sure. And I would be really resentful to see that happen. Yeah. Yeah. So just give us a sense of what your life is like at the moment when it seems to me every time I turn um, the radio or the telly on, they are well talking I, about water. I, in reality, I actually had retired from life 10 years ago. And that, by the way, is an extraordinary thing for a, a, a man to be able to say that at 55... I kind of just went, that's it. I'm happy to hang up my boots and I've made my contribution to life and I'm going to retire. Um, and then by osmosis and accident, find myself engaged in something. I have a huge passion for fly fishing. I became chairman of the oldest fly fishing club in England. Uh, you've now shed most of your listeners at this point. Uh, and I suddenly realized that here was two and a half miles of river in Hertfordshire that for 185 years, a group of men and women with an interest in fly fishing had looked after and preserved. And 185 years later, that river was about to die. It was suffering from eutrophication. It had become nothing more than a stagnant pond. And this is a chalk stream, one of the rarest ecosystems on the planet. I, like a lot of people, thought, well, this is easy because there's a big regulator out there called the Environment Agency and Parliament set them up and give them all these powers and control and I'll just toddle off and have a quick meeting with the Environment Agency and go, this is dreadful, you need to do something about it and I could then get on with my life. And I think it was about 10 minutes into that first meeting when my BS detector went off and went, oh my God. And then I realised that I was going to have to go and pick a big fight. Uh, it was that it was that that specific stretch of water that triggered this whole thing, this whole uh, campaign. Yes, to give you a little indication of this, the, the Southern England is unique. There are about two hundred and twenty-five chalk streams on the planet. They're a complete freak of geology, and think fifty to seventy-five million years ago when. London was sitting somewhere off the equator and we were still joined to northern France. And there are 225, 85% of them are here in southern England. And most of them right now are teetering on the brink of extinction because of the way we've treated them, abused them and exploited them. And the one that the Ammo Magna looks after, we have been in charge of for yeah, 185 years. It is one of the last remaining places on the very edge of London where you can still find a breeding, sustainable population of wild brown trout. I know that seems like a silly thing to say, but let me put it this way. I suspect we might come on to it. There are, within the M25, about 200 miles of river. All tributaries of the Thames. I have walked every single mile of every single one of those rivers. Not that long ago, they would have been full of hundreds, if not thousands of populations of trout, salmon, sea trout. We've decimated all of them. We've killed them all off. We've brought them to the eggs of extinction. 
apart from one little two-and-a-half-mile stretch in Hertfordshire. Oh. And rather curiously, I thought that might be worth saving. Yeah, so why haven't you saved the rest, Vogel? Uh, well, I'm doing my best right now, <laughs> so, which is why, funnily enough, I guess we're here, where the short version is I ended up working with a charity taking the Environment Agency pretty much to the steps of the High Court simply to get them to do the right thing. Now, I will admit that at this point we've resolved our issues with the Environment Agency. There is more water and plentiful water going down that river than we've seen in decades. But that experience of having to put the very government agency charged and given responsibility and the legal power to oversee and protect those rivers, having to take them to court just to get them to do their job, that kind of pricked my curiosity and as I sometimes explain it that gave me an itch and foolishly stupidly naively I scratched the bloody itch and every time I scratch that itch I just end up with an even bigger itch so what's the biggest itch at the moment uh, oh the simple fact you know, at a national scale there is not a single river in England that is in good overall environmental health every single river in England is polluted and it's our fault and you scale that back, most of that, or at least a large deal of it, has been driven by the water industry. And this is an industry that is supposed to provide water, supposed to collect and dispense with an appropriate manner our sewage. But as we have now discovered, and I hope I may have made some small, meagre contribution to help the public understand, this is an industry that has made off with 72 billion pounds worth of our money from our pockets, have left these companies in 60 billion pounds worth of debt, now spent 7.5 million hours over the last three years dumping sewage into our rivers, decimating whole landscapes and ecologies, and has now created a situation where, believe it or not, I can't believe I'm saying it, London is now number nine on global cities most likely to run out of drinking water. We're now on a list, along with the likes of Cape Town, Sao Paulo, Mexico City and Jakarta. I should say, by the way, back to my point about nobody cares how much you know to the note. You You're sitting here without a note. You kind of do seem to me to know this stuff inside out. What do you think it says about our politics that it's taken, you know, false modesty aside, it has taken you, in a way, um, to bring this to the head. Oh, well, listen, the simple truth of the matter is we have a regulatory system that has failed. And you are right. Uh, that makes me quite furious. Uh, within the next 24 hours, there will be yet another hearing and another select committee in Parliament calling in the chair and chief executive of the regulator, the leaders of Thames Water, and holding another inquiry. My argument is, why are we calling in the chair and chief executive of Offwood? We need the board in there. They're the public appointees. They're the ones appointed by the Secretary of State to act on behalf of government and therefore Parliament and indeed to then act on behalf of the general public. They're the ones that set the policy. They're the ones that set the strategy. Why are we not holding those people to account for the decisions they've made on our behalf and not some helpless chief executive? If you had to sort of... I hate the concept of apportioning blame, but if you had to apportion blame for the mess that we're in, just go through the, the various culprits. Um, well, you have to listen, you have to start. For me, there's a very simple thing, and I'm very happy and I can compartmentalise things quite quickly and simply. Did the water companies make an awful lot of money and was an awful lot of corporate greed involved? Or as Jonathan Ford from the FT refers to as the water industry is just a legalised rip-off? Absolutely. But that's why the regulators were there. 
and we've not got one, but we've got two regulators overseeing the water industry, Ofwat and the Environment Agency. And both of them, and I say this as a former regulator, both of them have been the most catastrophic failure I can think of. The impact that we're now going to be faced as society is there is a catastrophic amount of money that now needs to be spent repairing the sewage system, securing London's water supply. I suspect we taxpayers and customers are going to end up picking up the tab for that incompetence. And if we have any kind of will at all to ensure that you can, as I know is a passion of yours, walk into the nearest river and go swimming in it without being confronted with the ugly underbelly of our sewage system. Mm. And I do mean wet wipes and sanitary products and contraceptives. Then we now have another even bigger amount of money to be spent. And all of it is now probably, directly and indirectly, going to be picked up by the taxpayer and by the bill payer. And all of it actually boils down to nothing more than utterly incompetent, catastrophic failure of regulation. Okay, so that says to me that you're basically saying the regulations failed, yeah. the companies are greedy. What about the very the original decision back in 1989, privatisation? I mean, um, well, did you see any merits in that at the time? Uh, well, listen, uh, personally speaking, no. But then, as you know, I come from a socialist background. Mm. <laughs> Where here's the thing: thirty years later, England, so far as I'm aware, England is still unique in that we're the only country in the world that has an absolutely one hundred percent privatised water system. And what does that tell you? That there's not a single country anywhere else in the planet that went for that model. Clearly, there may be some kind of inherent flaw to the whole design and application of it. There's any amount of joint partnerships with local authorities, national governments, private sector, but England is the only country 30 years later with a completely 100% private sector, and clearly it's an experiment that has catastrophically failed. Well, in, even the Financial Times said that last weekend. This yeah. is an experiment that's failed. What, um, what do you make of the, 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 the current, I'm assuming Therese Coffey is the, is the minister in charge, <laughs> give, give me, well, I'm just laughing. Give me, a, give me your assessment there. Uh, well, well, listen. The best assessment I can give you is, uh, and I did it. It's a badge I wear with honour and pride. If you go and do have a look at my Twitter profile, you see I've actually quoted on there, chunters on Twitter, quote in quotation marks. Theresa Coffey, Secretary of State for the Environment, <laughs> UK 2023. So that's clearly what Therese thinks of me and my little efforts. Have you, been, have you, have you had any meetings with her at all? Uh, no, no, listen, I had one brief meeting four or five years ago with uh, Rebecca Pye. Mm -hmm. um, and Alistair, you ask about kind of my encyclopedic knowledge of these things. I very quickly realised from my early interactions going back four, maybe five years ago, every time I spoke to somebody from government, spoke to somebody from the Environment Agency, off what, or the industry, and I'm, I'm trying to say this as diplomatically as I should, and maybe not as diplomatically as I really should. I quickly realised that at best, I was being given a half-truth, if not a downright fabrication of what the reality of the event and situation was. And that's why I had to go and spend hours digging this stuff out by instinct and just replicating the instinct you have as a journalist and many others. You just know there's something going on here and you're just going to have to keep pushing until you find it. So whenever I sit down and people go, oh, well, it's because we've got this Victorian sewage system. Uh, I'm really sorry. We may as well blame the bloody Romans for traffic jams on the M2 and the M25. We don't have a Victorian system. Oh, but government's going to spend £56 billion fixing this. Okay, that's over 28 years. That's amongst 11 water companies. That works out at £181 million per company per year. 
to give your listeners a bit of context, just before Christmas, Thames Water declared 493.5 million pound profit in six months. Now compare the supposed government grand scheme investment of £181 million a year against Thames Water's half a billion pound profit in six months. Just to put it into context. Do you feel you're making headway or do you feel you're banging your head against the brick wall? Oh no, that's uh, I'm happy to admit it and I know some people in uh, Whitehall find that I feel I'm being disruptive, but I'm genuinely not. I've lost control of this. Government's lost control of this. The water industry's lost control of this. If you're not aware, three weeks ago, UCOV did a poll. 69% of voters think that the water company should now be nationalised. And if I remember correctly... Do you think that's feasible, by the way? Uh, well, it's not because we can't afford it. So you accept that it's oh, economically yes. no, listen, I, impossible? I, I think we can assume right now, um, and since we probably share a number of acquaintances, um, I think that if there is a change of administration at the next election... There's one certainty we can actually all depend upon. The economy is just in such a catastrophic state that government will be utterly focused and just trying to maintain some basic public services and functions like education in the NHS. And by the way, that nurse that needs a pay rise. Are you really going to explain to that nurse that you've just given several more tens, if not hundreds of billions of pounds of the public's money? So where does your campaign go? Oh, well, for me, it's very simple. Right now, it's all about the campaign and right now we have the situation where Thames Water is now teetering on the bank of bankruptcy. There are four other companies to my certain knowledge are not that far behind. We now have the opportunity to now start dictating the shape and future of those companies and personally speaking I think the legislation's already there. Government already has the power. The regulators already have the power. We need now to sit down with these companies and the shareholders and the bond managers and go, here's how this works. You're going to feel a lot of pain for the next 5, 10, 15 years. But if you agree to what we're going to suggest, you will end up with successful debt-free companies facing a profitable future and it won't have cost the taxpayer a penny. So you have government control without government ownership? So, uh, I'm going to give you the wherewithal for it. Section 18 of the Water Industries Act, 1991. Whoever drafted it predicted this very situation and it was a very insightful judgment. Theresa Coffey, the Secretary of State, could fix most of this this afternoon with nothing more than the stroke of a pen. She's had that power since the day she took office. The question actually becomes... Why hasn't she actually used that power and that authority? Okay, well, Theresa, if you're listening, you can come on and explain any point you like, and we might even get Fergal back from the, <laughs> and the show. Now, you mentioned earlier that you had experience as a regulator. <laughs> so this is this is when you kind of went into the the into the music industry as a. Just describe what you did. Well, ironically enough, I uh, did uh, go off into the music industry. I got to about thirty, I think. And as I sometimes describe it, I began to have this reoccurring nightmare of waking up one day to discover I was the wrong side of 50 with a receding hairline and a ponytail. Yeah, it's good. And still deluding myself that I might be back on top of the pops this week and thinking, it's not a good look, Sharky. It's really not. Um, grateful that I'd had the career I had. The undertones, the thing with Vince Clark and the Assembly, my solo career. There's three careers more than most people ever get close mm -hmm. to. So I thought, again, naively, stupidly, arrogantly at 30, that I could make a whole career path choice jump and still end up doing something reasonably productive and interesting in life. So I went to work for record companies. Along the way, because of my fly fishing thing, I managed to contract Wiles disease, which nearly killed me, but not quite. 
uh, that left me quite kind of uh, debilitated in the mid-1990s. And again, I'm not blowing smoke in your direction, Alistair, but as it turned out, while I was recuperating from all of that, incapable of going back to work full-time, just physically not capable of it. And at the time, there was a Labour government who had introduced and was beginning to implement a set of recommendations by a man called Lord Noland around the whole idea of propriety in public life and who tore apart and re-examined the whole issue of public appointees. And it was the then Labour government that actually advertised openly competitive application process for board positions on the radio authority. Now, would, would this also be a government that you would, you would exempt from some of the criticisms of the commitment to Northern Ireland? Uh, yes. Thank you. <laughs> I know, listen, I can get into that one on another occasion. So, so you then became? I became the one of the people that were responsible for regulating the commercial radio industry in the United yeah. Kingdom. So as it turns out, and I kind of, it, it's a bit late now, early in my little challenges, my little approach to the water industry and stuff, I clearly made uh, quite a lot of effort to make sure that nobody actually vaguely knew I might actually know something about regulation and <laughs> about how it worked, but it's now out there. So I would like to think that when I openly and furiously criticise the likes of Offwat and the Environment Agency, I would like to think that I can do it from a position of some strength, knowledge and experience, having done that kind of job myself in the past. And then you were also CEO of British Music, right? Uh, UK Music. So how does that work? Is that about getting them the money they deserve from all the different... Uh, yeah, that actually again it goes back to the Labour government. And this is not a kind of love-in for the Labour government, by the way. It's, it's a great, great government, though. It is the I way mean, things Rory work. says this all the time, you know, Labour um, government was the fantastic. The then Labour government had been making overtures for the music industry for a number of years, going, you know what, we obviously think the creative industry is utterly fantastic. And we want to do everything we can to try and help them out. Because when it comes to music, film, fashion, design, writing, reading, the UK punches way above its own weight in the international stage and is glory recognised and admired for the contribution it makes. So as a government, we want to try and do something to help support and make sure you're getting everything you need from a government. At the time, the music industry was uh, full of its own warring parties and I very loosely describe it as traditionally all of the recording artists hate the record companies and the record companies all hate the publishers and the publishers all hate the lawyers and the lawyers all hate the songwriters and the songwriters all hate the managers and everybody all hates the agents and on and on and on. And I was tasked by the industry to basically put the 12 warring sectors in a room to help them develop consensus, to help them create an ambition and a vision for their own future and help them to bring that to fruition. And the structure that was used to achieve that is UK music. I'm pleased to say that 12, 14 years, 15 years after I put the thing together, it's still there, still providing the heartbeat. I can still remember phoning a uh, mutual friend of ours who I won't name, who at the time was an advisor at number 10 and uh, telling him what had just been done and the voice on the other end of the phone slightly more colourfully than I'm about to say, it simply went, oh my God, that's all the talent and all the money in the same room. Yes. And by God, does that give you strength and power. Enormous. And I think it was a valuable lesson for the music industry. And after that, the British music industry, there's any number of challenges. I'm not going to mention the B word, but I will. Well, I want you to actually. I want to know how the, what the impact of Brexit... Um, well, it certainly devastated the live music industry. There are two teams in the Premier League in the global music industry. There's the North Americans 
and the UK. And it's no disrespect to the rest of the planet. They're all playing Sunday league morning football on Hackney Marshes. It's nice you're there, you're having fun, but you're nowhere near the two big boys. And that Anglo-American catalogue, as we call it generically in the industry, loosely would account until right quite recently, would loosely account for about 80% of the market in Europe. Now we've just gone and made it massively more difficult for ourselves that when the government should be sitting with UK music on behalf of the industry and going, we like this 80% stuff, do you think we could make it 85 or maybe even 90? And can we come up with a plan and a strategy that will deliver that and all the benefits that does to our GDP and income and jobs and employment and VAT and everything else? Nope, we've actually made it more difficult, if not downright impossible, for British artists to now go and work and tour in Europe. And I've recently believed that this government actually was made several offers by the EU to try and find a resolution to this and flatly turn them all down to such an extent, even the likes of Elton John, who's just finishing off a global tour, which, according to the newspapers, that one tour alone generated $700 million worth of income. And even Elton was complaining he was finding it difficult to deal with the bureaucracy and the paperwork needed to go and actually do dates around the rest of Europe. So I'm assuming your mum raised you to want to one day see a United Ireland. Do you, yeah. still, do you still want to see that and do you still think you will? Um, well, ironically enough, I never thought in my lifetime I would ever use the words unified Ireland and remotely be taken seriously, thanks to Brexit. has clearly put that down the table. I wasn't being particularly insightful about it, but at the time I did try to make it clear to as many people as possible. If Brexit happened, that was going to force a border down the middle of the Irish Sea and that invariably would make people in Northern Ireland socially, culturally, economically, look more towards the Republic than England. We're now in a situation where Sinn Féin is the largest party in Northern Ireland. There's a distinct likelihood at the next election in the Republic of Ireland, Sinn Féin will become the largest party in the Republic of Ireland. So here's the thing, thanks to Brexit, that chess piece is now out on the table. I think if everybody's been really clever, thanks to that Susan Mackay book that Rory mentioned a couple of episodes back, it provides a remarkable insight in that there's a community in Northern Ireland right now resigned to the fact that change is going to happen, but feeling desperately insecure and unsupported and isolated. And I think politicians on both sides of the border in the North and the Republic will want to be very sensitive about that point and that community and their future. And let me remind you all, thanks to the Good Friday Agreement, the people of Ireland get to have another referendum. So they get to have another decision and another bite of whether or not Northern Ireland wants to become part of United Ireland and by default rejoin the EU. There's a lot to play for. <laughs> I mean, it is amazing when you think of it, Fergal. There's you as sort of, you know, punk rocker <laughs> who had the foresight to see that Brexit might lead to the necessity for a border down the Irish Sea. But Boris Johnson didn't have that foresight. Um, well, listen, the simple fact of the matter is... And you he, didn't even go to Eton, did you? Uh, well, funny enough, I didn't. I found myself in the clutches of the Christian brothers. <laughs> but if it, if it helps, Alistair, I, uh, many, 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 many years later, you don't have to go to Eton, because many decades later, I found myself standing in the middle of Catania, the capital city of Sicily, looking at the Roman ruins, thinking, bloody hell, I can still translate that damned Latin inscription. So you don't have to go to Eton to do those things. <laughs> to do your Latin. Very good. Have you ever thought about going into politics? No. Because? 
Well, I know an awful lot of politicians. <laughs> They're nice people, but you know, I've no ambition in that direction. None whatsoever, Alistair. It's kind of kind of somebody to offer. You're not going to run out of campaigning zeal, though. I can sense that. Um, no, but listen, I, I am being very honest about it. I was quite happy minding my own business in my retirement. Oh, go on. You, I, must, you must love it. Walking around Hampstead Heath as you were the other day and bumping into me and Fiona and Fiona saying, <laughs> you're my, you're my yeah, new Alistair, hero. You must love it. Yeah, but Alistair, here's, here's the weird thing. All of my adult life, since I've been 20 years old, I can go all kinds of weird places in the world and the people do that. And they would want to talk about music and records and gigs and T-shirts and interviews and stuff they'd seen and heard. And what a glorious, glorious life to lead and want an existence that these random people who you've never met will never ever see again just want to talk to you enthusiastically and engagingly about music. Yeah, but now they want you to change the world because they want you to get their water clean. Well, now they want me to talk about, if I can say it, now they want me to talk to me about shite and rivers. Mm. Well, guess what? I'm really looking forward to when I can go back to talking about music again and stop talking about shite and I rivers. I think you've got some time to go before you stop talking <laughs> about shite and rivers. Well, I'm clearly depending on there being a change of administration in about 12 months' time that then I can uh, go and hang out my uh, sewage boots and my sewage gloves. Do you think that would be enough, though? Uh, oh, yes. No, I was very genuinely... Uh, I was asked, essentially asked this question by the chair of the EA about five years ago as to what was driving me, motivated me. And I guess it was back to that childhood and growing up in Northern Ireland. It's when I realised that this country is full of incredibly decent little community groups and full of incredibly decent, committed local people. They're not militant. They're not campaigners. They're not activists. They're not entomologists or hydrologists. They're just decent local people that have known for decades that their river is slowly dying. They don't understand why. They will go and organise petitions outside the local supermarket. They'll present it to the Environment Agency. They'll present it to government. They put their trust in the system. And the bit that made me furious was the system took that trust and abused it and dismissed it. And that was all the motivation I needed. Now, part of the thing I don't like about the system, Fergal, yeah. is the honours system. Right. And you took an OBE. <laughs> now, where's this empire? Where is this empire of which you've now oh, got the order? Uh, yes, what I did. What did your mum think of that? Uh, well, you see, ironically enough, here's the weird thing. I, uh, one of my earliest childhood memories, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, as you will, can probably understand. As it turned out, my father actually worked part-time for the British government. And uh, when he retired, he was offered the uh, British Empire Service Medal. Mm -hmm. And I can still remember, I must have been 12 or 13, this massive row going on at home. And it was the only time I really saw my parents fall out with each other. And that was because your mum didn't it, want him to take it. There you go. And it left me completely traumatised. And my family are probably hearing this for the first time. I was so traumatised by the whole thing. I actually ran out of the house and went to a local telephone box and called one of my older sisters to go, you have to come quick. I think my dad, mum and dad are about to start falling out with each other. They're going to get divorced. You have to come quick. Come quick. Um, listen, ultimately, I have my own family. I have my own children. I have my own creed and ambitions for them. And I suddenly thought, you know what, might it provide some motivation to my own children to say you can go out in the world and you can take on incredible challenges and you can take on things that people will tell you are impossible and undoable and you can deliver it and you can have the recognition for it. And I know it may sound like a bit of a cop-out, but I did sit there thinking, 
what a valuable lesson for my 18-year-old daughter to learn. Very good. Well, I think you definitely deserve something for your campaign. <laughs> but whether you're doing it for the planet or the empire. <laughs> anyway, it's been an absolute joy talking to you, Virgil. No, no, still listen. I'm just, you know, uh, I'm fascinated. I'm delighted and pleased and flattered that you even asked me to come and do this. And, and it's a huge privilege. And thank you very much. Enjoyed every second of it. <laughs> <laughs>